0: This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Look again at verse 8 if you still have your Bible open. See verse 8. That's our text for this afternoon. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Thus far the reading of God's holy, precious word. Dear friend, Why do you come to church? And as you think about that, I want you to imagine that you've been invited by the world's top chef, and you've been invited to come to his private restaurant. More than that, he figures that only if you're going to come to his restaurant, you better show up in style, so he sends you a limo to pick you up. It arrives right on time. You hop in, you get to the restaurant, and when you enter, you're amazed. You look around, you make comments about the atmosphere. Uh, You compliment him for the delicious sounding menu as you drool over the items on it. And instead of taking your pick, you turn to the waiter and say, What's the most popular item? Because I want the best. And so he goes back and places your order. And when the meal comes to the table, you thank the waiter. And look at that food. Oh, it looks amazing. You look at it a while. You enjoy a nice conversation. You're there with your friends. And after some time, you walk away without touching the food. Now, I don't need to tell you that that would be a huge dishonor to the chef, Yes, you showed up at the restaurant, but you didn't eat the food. In congregation, how often do we do that with God? Uh, We read the menu without digging into the meal. The menu, the word of God, and all of worship, these means of grace, are given so that we might feast on God in Christ. He comes to us through his word and this is why we gather for worship. That we might glorify him as we are receiving him, as we are enjoying him, as we are delighting in him. It's then as we are sinking the teeth of our soul as it were into Christ as he comes to us that our hearts are then loosened and our tongues are loosened to sing his praise. Oh, Isn't he good? In congregation, what I'm saying is that it's by delighting in God as he offers himself to us that we then in turn offer him heart-level praise. And we all are guilty, of course, of falling short at this point. And even more than that, though, it's possible to be here this afternoon To be present here and yet to never in our life actually have gone ahead and enjoyed God in Christ. That's a possibility. To have remained in our unbelief, disinterested in God. And yet even for us who are his dearly loved children. Isn't it very easy to make a regular habit of just going through the motions of reading the menu and not tasting And not seeing that he truly is good. Well, our text, notice, God holds out to us the greatest of invitations. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And notice this. God isn't here then at the beginning of this service to just scold us and say, come on, why haven't you eaten more in the past? That's not how he approaches us. He comes to us with an invitation, the sweetest, the best of invitations. And that's what we want to look at then this afternoon. Our title is simply, Oh, Taste and See. And we have two points. And the first one is savor the Lord's goodness. And if you were from my congregation, you would know my first point normally lasts a little longer than the second. So don't be concerned. Uh, we will spend the bulk of our time on the first point, intentionally so, savoring the Lord's goodness, and then turn to the second point. Again, verse eight: "O oh, taste and see, that the Lord is good. Congregation, this is where we need to start. We need to start with God because when we hear of the goodness of God, we might be tempted actually, first of all, to just go and run and look at his gifts. And God's goodness is seen in his gifts, absolutely. But the Christian, the one who knows God's undeserving mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's been completely washed clean in Christ-cleansing blood, the one who's been freely gifted these royal robes of righteousness and who's been made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit, the Christian, they want to start with God. Because the Christian has learned, even if they're just learning the beginnings of this, they have learned that the Lord is delightful. He is good. And I stress this because this is one clear difference between the true Christian and everyone else. Uh, the, the Christian loves not just salvation. Oh, the Christian loves salvation. The Christian doesn't just love forgiveness of sins and how the Christian loves the forgiveness of sins. But the Christian loves Christ. Christ. Yes, their love waxes and wanes, it dips, it even becomes like hardly smoldering embers at times, and yet there, because it's the work of the Spirit, there is this baseline love for Christ, and then Christ comes, and he sees us smoldering embers and all, and he comes through his word, as it were, and he blows on those embers so that they start to flame again. And that's what he's here to do. Notice David, how enthralled he is with the Lord. Look at verse 1. I bless the Lord at all times. Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Uh, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Verse 4. I sought the Lord. Verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. Verse 9. Fear the Lord. 18 of these 22 verses implicitly or explicitly mention the Lord. Here is a man who knows the loveliness of the Lord, and so his life is more and more being centered on his God. Well, what is God like? Just take a minute. Imagine yourself you had a blank piece of paper, and you had to finish this sentence. No one else is looking. Your Sunday school teacher won't scold you. You have a blank piece of paper and you have to finish the sentence. The Lord is blank. How are you filling that in? The Lord is harsh. The Lord is absent. Notice the truth is very different. The Lord is is good. He is good. Friend, I wonder, do you believe that this afternoon? What a nasty maze of problems we get ourselves into when we doubt or begin to lose sight of the goodness of God. Uh, He quickly then becomes that harsh tyrant in the sky. And maybe if we weren't too afraid to say it out loud, you might be thinking, I don't really like him all that much, actually. Even God's people can easily lose sight of the goodness of God. Satan loves to direct his attacks here, and our foolish hearts are so quick to believe the Lord. Uh, Martin Luther, he said, the biggest battle every day that we fight is, and again, think about how you would finish that, the biggest battle every day, well, getting my kids dressed for school, obviously, the biggest battle we fight, everyday Christian, is to believe that the Lord is good. That's, that's Luther. And notice Christians lose sight of this. David himself had lost sight of the Lord's goodness. Look again at the title of the psalm. It's so important. The title here, just as inspired as all the verses that follow, the title says, A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out And he went away. And so, young people, what we find here is David writing this psalm immediately after this incredibly low point in his life. Maybe you know the story. David's been hunted like a bird on the back hills of Israel. Uh, He's been running from jealous King Saul, who's wanted to kill him. And in his desperation, do you know what David did? He thought, I will run to the one place that can save me. And he didn't run to God. He ran to the Philistines. And when he crossed the boundary of the territory, he thought, good, Saul can't catch me here. Look at the Philistines, look how strong they are. And as he went into their cities, he thought, oh no, what have I done? Look how strong they are. And I mean, don't the Philistines have every reason to hate David? He's killed their champion, Goliath, and they probably haven't forgot about it. And so he is a target for them. He's jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. And so 1 Samuel 21 tells us the story of how David was afraid for his life and he played the part of a madman in order to escape. Now, it's after that less than impressive event in David's life that he's writing the psalm. He has just doubted the goodness of God and now having come through that experience, he's on the other side and he's saying, don't do what I just did. And dear Christian, isn't this so often how it goes? We learn through our failures. Uh, We run scared from one trial, maybe to a substitute for God, expecting protection and help, only to find that the substitute for God, the idol, is a slave, a tyrant, and now we're in worse trouble. And then like a poor beggar, we start to cry out to the Lord. He hears us. He delivers us. And we say, why did I doubt him in the first place? I mean, why wasn't prayer priority number one for me? Why did it take me so long to pray? Well, that's David here instructing us about the goodness of the Lord. The Lord is good. Uh, What a description of God. And one thing that makes God utterly unique is that God is, as our Belgic Confession says, simple. Now, that doesn't mean he's easy to understand, absolutely not, but it means simple in the sense he's not made up of parts. Um, He's one unified being, and so he is love, he is holy, he is light, he is good. These aren't bits added to God, as it were, but this is God. One whole unified being. And so what that means for us is God's whole being is unchangeably pervasively, perfectly saturated with goodness. This is highlighting God's moral perfection. There's no evil in him. There's no darkness in God. He doesn't have any shady aspects to his character. When Jesus came to this world, he came to reveal the Father to us and he didn't think or say, uh, I'm gonna show you the Father, but I'm not gonna show you this bit because I'm ashamed of it or because it's kind of a dark spot in his character. No, Jesus shows us the Father. Do you want to know what the Father's like? Look at Jesus. He has nothing to hide, the Lord. He is good. Well, that's the psalmist's clear statement. The Lord is good. And he doesn't say this lightly, as we've been saying, because his life isn't easy. David, if you keep reading past 1 Samuel 21, you'll find out he's still on the run for his life from Saul. And so he is saying this In a time of hardship, Uh, it's easy for someone to say, maybe, the Lord is good when things are going well, but here is a man when things are not going well, and he is saying, believe me, I mean it, it's true, the Lord is good. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, that's the truth about God, but here's the critical point of our text, God doesn't just want us to acknowledge that truth, say, oh yes, he's good, ho-hum, and then let's go back home. If we do that, we probably haven't truly grasped the truth of our text. Because if we saw his goodness, then we would want more of him. We would be thrilled. And so the psalmist, notice, says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This here is an open invitation to personally enjoy and savor God for yourself. Now, children, um, I wonder, do you have a favorite restaurant? When I was a boy, I loved food. I still love food. But when I was a boy, I loved food. And I had a favorite restaurant. Um, the Mandarin Now maybe you can guess, Uh, I said I loved food, you can maybe guess why I liked the Mandarin. Uh, It's an all-you-can-eat buffet. And uh, we would go there just once a year, that precious day, once a year on my Oma's birthday. And if you've ever been, maybe you can too picture yourself in the waiting room and the fish are there and you're kind of worried, what are they going to do with those fish later? But it's the Mandarin and it's an all-you-can-eat buffet and you go for plate upon plate and there's an ice cream bar, kids, and you can put whatever chocolate sauce, caramel sauce, peanuts, whatever you want on the ice cream, and you can go back for more than one bowl. I love the mandarin. Well, the Lord here is wanting us to picture Him in all of His goodness and glory as a feast. A feast all-you-can-eat buffet. God is saying, don't leave me on the table. Bring me to the mouth of your soul. Feast on me. Come, take me for yourself. Enjoy the sweetness of my goodness and grace. And this is an invitation that's addressed to sinners. David's a sinner you and I, we're sinners. And so, friend, whoever you are, whatever your past, whatever your present, this is God's message for you today in Christ. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, all who are sick and tired of their sin. Come to me, all who are restless, living a meaningless life. Come to me, I will give you rest, joy, life, satisfaction, salvation. And He will. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Oh, what a picture. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And, dear Christian, the Spirit is the one who has awakened your spiritual taste buds so you have savored the bread of life in your past. You ate Christ by faith, and he was lovely you thought, why don't I eat more of him? Why do I waste my time with all this other stuff in this world? It's a miracle of grace because we know by nature we crave sin, not God, but it's by his grace that our hearts and desires have been changed. The Spirit is the one who's enlightened the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of God, Ephesians 1, 18 tells us. Jonathan Edwards Theologian, he explains this in his famous book, The Religious Affections. Really, his big point of that big book is this true religion consists in great part in holy affections, holy loves. And so he says this, listen to this. The first saving effect of the power of God as he regenerates our hearts is this, and Dr. Edwards. What is it? What's the first thing God does in my heart when he causes me to come to life? He gives the heart a divine taste or sense. He causes it to have a relish of the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellence of God. And Christian, that's true of you. You've tasted God. You've seen him. And yet notice, notice what God is saying to you. Come taste more. Come see more. There's more to taste. There's more to see. Don't just have a small sampling. Come with hungry hearts. Come open your mouth wide, Psalm 81, verse 10, and I will give you just the scraps. I will fill it. Now, practically, Christians, how do we do this? God actually tells us in the New Testament, First Peter chapter 2 1 Peter 2, verse 3, Peter quotes our text, Psalm 34, verse 8, and right before he quotes our text, he tells us practically, like boots on the ground, how we can savor more of the goodness of God, and there's two things. Peter, the pastor, is going to warn us first, and he's going to do so by saying, warning, it's possible, Christian, to shrink your spiritual appetite. Um, And it's this, here's the warning. Sin dulls our spiritual senses. So 1 Peter 2, verse 1. And listen to how sin dulls our spiritual senses. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And that's right before he gets to our text. So he's saying before, before you taste and see more of the goodness of God, there's a putting away. Because that is stealing your spiritual appetite, Christian. So this means I need to personally guard my spiritual walk and heart. I need to be alert to the thing that is dampening my appetite for God. And so Christian, what is it in your life? Take some inventory. Uh, What is dampening your appetite for God? When I went to the Mandarin, it was kind of a whole day preparation, right? You had to be ready. You got to be ready. Didn't want to dampen my appetite. What's dampening your spiritual appetite for God? It's probably the thing you're thinking about right now. Well, look at it. It's not worth it. Toss it aside. It's dampening your spiritual appetite for God. But notice we must also guard our relationships. Peter says, put away malice. That's this anger and hatred that destroys Christ's exalting fellowship. It distracts us away from Christ. Lay aside slander and envy. And that makes sense because as long as we are longing for what others have, I'm not gonna long for God So Peter says, if we are feasting on sin, we'll be too full to want God. Sin dulls our spiritual sense. That's the negative, but then notice the positive. 1 Peter 2, 2 continues, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up. And so Christian, uh, here's, here's our model that God is holding out before us, and it's a newborn baby. The newborn baby that can't live without milk, that cries out for milk, that just wants the bottle or milk, give me milk. That's our model. And it's the Bible, then, that increases our longing for God. As we spend time in the Word, not to tick a box, not to go through the motions. Yes, routines are good. But as we go to the Bible... God actually comes to us. Draw near to me. I will draw near to you. And as we're in the Word, then meditating on the Word, God comes to us that so we might actually taste and see that He is good. And if you keep reading Peter there in 1 Peter 2, he immediately goes on to speak of Christ. He's the one whom people have rejected, who's now become the chief cornerstone. He's the one who is precious. He's the one who stands at the center of the Word. And it's in Christ that we most clearly see the goodness and grace of God. And so do you want to taste and see the goodness of God? Look at Jesus. Meditate upon him again. It's in him that we see our good father giving up his own son to live and die in our place. Uh, as we go to the cross with all of our confusion of our own providences and they're hard. as I go to the cross, the father is declaring to me, this is how much I love you that I would make my own son suffer in your place so that you might be my child. I've erased all the guilt of your sin. I've gifted you righteousness. I've adopted you. And so God is saying, dear Christian, soak in these gospel truths. This is why we start with point one, because God is wanting us to have our lives saturated here. Um, So when life is tough, your roots are deep enough, like David now, who's learned the hard lesson, to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. He is good. There's no questions asked. Yes, it doesn't feel like it in this moment, but when the thoughts come in my head that say God is dark, he's not good, I'm swatting them away like flies because I know he's good. The cross declares to me he's good. The empty tomb shows to me he's good. Savor the Lord's goodness. Secondly, and lastly, Savor the Lord's gifts. Yes, we get to the gifts. And as a way uh, into this point, Savor the Lord's gifts, let me remind you of a story that I suspect you know well. In 1561, Guido de Bray and some other pastors, they penned the Belgic Confession. It was written as a defense of the Reformed faith to show their persecutors that they were not rebels but faithful citizens who were simply professing biblical doctrine. Uh, They delivered a copy of the Confession to King Philip II of Spain, and it had this preface attached to it that includes these jarring and yet inspiring words. Let me read them. They said that they would offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags. And their whole bodies to the fire, well knowing that those who follow Christ must take his cross, deny themselves rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. Maybe what you don't know is that for the next five years, Debray had to run for his life. Eventually he was caught and imprisoned. After refusing to recant, he was hung on May thirty-first, 1567. His body was then burned, and his ashes were scattered over a nearby river. He was only 44 years old. He left behind his dear wife and five children. Now, with his life in our minds, what is the first truth in the Belgian confession that Guido De Bray refused to recant? Article One: what we confess about God, it ends like this: God is good and the overflowing fountain of all good. Congregation, Debray believed that that was a truth worth dying for, that God is a bubbling spring, the source of every good and perfect gift. And it's a truth that we see here in the psalm. Notice the Lord's goodness. It's revealed in his gifts. Let me just highlight two of them. Uh, first, broadly speaking, notice God's provision. Look at verse 10. God's provision. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, children, the picture uh, David wants us to see is that of a lion, and young lion. Now, don't be thinking of a little cute lion cub, but this is a young lion, meaning a lion in its prime, Uh, you know, one to three years old, it's in its prime, it's in its peak, it's strong. The picture here is of a creature that is maybe most suited to be self-sufficient. He's called the king of the jungle for a reason. Uh, It's a lion, he's ferocious. He can, if he needs food, he's gonna go hunt. He can take down his prey or send out the mother lion to do it. Apparently the lady lions go and do all the hard work. But notice God's people they have the good God caring for them. They're not self-sufficient. They're not strong like lions. But they have the Almighty Lord caring for them. And so they don't lack any good thing. And so, Christian, the point here is savor the bounty of God's provision for you. Have you been doing that recently? Just think of all of his blessings. And maybe let me help you begin that list. You can continue it at the dinner table. Uh, Savoring the bounty God's blessings. Where where do we start? Well, let's start here. Uh, The bounty, the the blessing of the means of grace. Uh, 500,000, roughly, people in Niagara. How many do you think heard God speak today? We've heard the word of God. What a blessing. God comes to us in his words that we might know him and enjoy fellowship with him. What a blessing. But the Lord has also blessed us with a church family. Uh, If you're anything like me and my congregation, then, of course, you're far from perfect. There are real struggles in every church family, even between brothers and sisters that ought to be dealt with and forgiven. And yet, even with these challenges, what a blessing it is to be able to gather twice on a Lord's Day to worship our God. Last time I was here, maybe you remember... We were outside in the field. My iPad died because of overheating. What a blessing. We're indoors. It's getting cold. Not only do you have a church family to meet with on the Lord's Day, maybe uh, you'll meet with them at Bible study this week or one-on-one just bumping into someone from the church. Someone's going to call you maybe. Someone's going to visit you. So many people live alone in this world and we aren't denying that the church can be one of the loneliest places. Yes, it can. But look at the blessings of fellowship. What a blessing. And for many of us, uh, the Lord has given us parents or grandparents or teachers who have said things like verse 11 to us in our youth. Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Yes, they've been far from perfect, but what a blessing from our youth being taught about God. God has kindly provided for us food, drink, shelter, relationships. We could go on. How good God is. Continue the list at home. But here's the point one way to savor, because that's what we're after, savoring God's goodness. One way to savor his blessings is to take regular times in your life to press pause and to trace that gift back to its source and say, thank you, Lord, thank you, Father. This isn't just fate that's handed me these gifts. It's the fatherly hand of God. But lastly now, notice God's protection. Not only his provision, but his protection. It's another great blessing David highlights. This psalm, it's very clear that the Christian life is not an easy life. God's people experience many problems. And maybe, child of God, that's where you find yourself this afternoon. (laughs) Overwhelmed by troubles. And maybe when you see the title, or maybe as you've heard me preach, you might think, I can't even hear any of this because my trials are just too many. It just doesn't seem to resonate with me. But notice this psalm is very realistic. God's word is realistic. God's people have problems. You're not alone. Verse four, David speaks of fears. Verse six, Troubles. The Christian life is hard. Don't be surprised when you discover that. It's not a sign God has abandoned you. In fact, look at verse 19, really a summary verse. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And if you keep reading, the verses that follow make it absolutely clear this is, first of all, fulfilled not in you and I, but in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not a bone of His will be broken. And how Christ suffered. And yet that was not at all a sign that his father did not love him. Oh, how the opposite. And in Christ then, through God's gracious adoption, we can lay hold of promises like verse 18. Maybe this is the verse you need this week. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God is near. He is not absent. Scratch scratch that out of the paper if you wrote that on your paper. He is not distant. He's not absent. He is near. And he's near to save. It's the one who trusts in Christ who can have this great confidence, not that we experience it at all times, the enjoyment of that confidence, but the confidence remains, the objective confidence remains that the God of the universe has his face of favor turned towards me. Yes, hardship will happen, suffering will strike, but God will be there. And he has promised that whatever suffering falls upon us, it's all working for our greatest good. That is not a trite hallmark card statement. That is the word of God. I mentioned Guido Debray. Let me go back to him for a minute. Um, I told you he was martyred, gruesomely. And so here's my question as we close. Does that mean God's promises aren't true? I mean, look at Guido de Bray. Well, what would Guido say? I think we can discover the answer to that in a letter he wrote to his wife about a month before he died. Let me read you portions of that letter. He's in prison, and he writes to his dear wife, whom he he loved dearly. You can tell from the letter. You can find it online, by the way. Uh, He writes this, when I was arrested, I would say to myself, so many of us should not have traveled together. Uh, We were betrayed by this one or that one, or we ought not to have been arrested. And so you see what Debray is saying? He's saying he's just like you and I, asking all the what-ifs, running through all the scenarios, saying, how did I end myself up in this dungeon? Then he continues, With such thoughts, I became overwhelmed until my spirits were raised by meditation on the providence of God. Theology helps. Then my heart began to feel at great rest. I began then to say, My God, if at present my hour has come in which I will pass from this life to you, may your will be done. I cannot escape from your hands, and if I could, I would not, since it is happiness for me to conform to your will. These thoughts made my heart cheerful again. He goes on. And I ask you, my dear faithful companion, to join me in thanking God for what he has done. For he does nothing that is not just and very equitable, And you should believe that it is for my good and for my peace. You've seen and felt my labors and afflictions which I have endured, but now my God has extended his hand to receive me into his blessed kingdom. I shall see it before you, and when it shall please the Lord, you will follow me. And so he concludes this way I am happy. My heart is light, and it lacks nothing in my afflictions. I am so filled with the abundance of the richness of my God that I have enough for me and all those to whom I can speak. So I pray, my God, that he will continue his kindness to me, his prisoner. The one in whom I have trusted will do it, for I have found by experience that he will never leave those who have trusted in him. I would never have thought that God would would have been so kind to such a poor creature as I. I feel the faithfulness of my Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, this is your confidence. Your life is lived constantly under the watchful gaze of your loving Father. And he is saying, taste and see. That I am good. Taste it, believe it, sing it, live it, and long for the day when faith will be made sight and you will un- enjoy unclouded fellowship with our triune God for all eternity. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's.